on to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. As Paul goes on with his, um, his indictment against his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews. And here you see, he calls them by name. He actually hasn't done so thus far. He says, uh, O man, chapter 2, verse 1. But here he makes it explicit that the man he's speaking to is the Jew. And this is what he says. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you are uh, you, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And let us pray together. Father, again, we are confronted with a text which is sobering in the extreme because we find Paul here speaking to the people who were and who considered themselves the people of God. And it is always sobering to think of ourselves in that same light, to realize that such things might indeed and often do indeed apply to the church today. Uh, Ever since Paul has declared the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in chapter one, verse 18, we've been in the midst of of the sobering news, the bad news, Paul exposing and and condemning the pride of man. And and, and we are hastening on. Uh, It won't be long now until we get to the good news. But uh, but Lord. Uh, it is it is good to have our, our pride humbled. It is good for us to see why it is we need the righteousness of another. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would allow the law and scripture to do its work, even in the church today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we find Paul here doing, as I just indicated before uh, I read the passage, is that uh, now he uh, defines the man, O oh man, of verse 1. The man he is addressing is the Jew. As John Murray says, he addresses the Jew directly and pointedly. And all that he says in these verses to the end of verse 29. So beginning in verse 17 to the end of verse 29. So the remainder of chapter uh, chapter two, though we're only looking at verses 17 through 24. All of these verses are directed at the Jew. He's addressing him personally, again, personally and directly and pointedly. The Apostle Paul is here, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, taking all of the teaching from verses 1 through 16, which came in a more general form, addressing the man, you, O man. He's taking the teaching, especially what he said in verses 1, 3, and 13. I'll just read verse 1, but verses 3 and 13 have a similar ring to them. You're inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. There's the accusation. And he takes that and applies it to them directly. And look at how he does so. Well, first, we need to remember what the main accusation was. 
that the Jew, as we saw just now in verse 1, was one like the Gentile who was inexcusable. For he did not live up to the standard by which he judged others. It is true he didn't approve of the sins of others, which was the cardinal assertion against the Gentile at the end of chapter 1, that he not only practiced sinful things, but he lent his approval to those who did the same. And pivoting to the Jew in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, it is true, the Jew is not someone who lends his approval. In fact, he's someone who disapproves. And yet, what advantage was this to him, that he judged the Gentile, that he condemned the Gentile for their sins, rather than throwing in his approval as the Gentiles were doing, when he committed the exact same sins? There was, Paul is saying, really little difference between the two positions, the one who approves and the one who disapproves, when they both are guilty of the same sins. The Jew may have judged the Gentile, and he may have had the law that the Gentile did not. The Gentile, you remember, was one who was without law from the prior passage. That is, without the law of Moses revealed to him. But neither of these things would justify the Jew or enable him to escape the judgment of God when he did not do the things that were written in the law of Moses. And with that being uh, the teaching thus far, the general teaching, the, the apostle now pursues the Jew in a relentless fashion until he is uh, left with no objection or excuse to raise. But let me pause for a moment and uh, question or evaluate the apostle's method here. You notice what he's doing. He is directly confronting a man. He is directly confronting, let us say, a position which many men happen to hold. Again, the relentless pursuit of the sinner. The question which I have with regard to preaching or even uh, Christian interaction with the world is what we might think of this. Calling a man out by name, calling a sin out by name. What do we think of the preacher who is so ruthless in exposing the pride of sin in his hearers, who isn't afraid to do so? Well, I suppose we need to consider the argument itself, what it is he is exposing in particular, before we try to answer that question. And I'm going to answer that question at the end of the sermon. And yet I still ask the question, what most congregations today would think of the preacher who did that, who pursued the hearers as Paul did here, his own hearers. But let us consider his argument, the way in which he pursues the Jew and he makes him feel in particular his emptiness before God when he thought he was full. And the, the passage is capable of various divisions. I'm going to offer two. One is simply this, under three headings, verses 17 through 20, Paul uh, offers a list of the things uh, that describe the Jew or the things by which the Jew would describe himself. It is a catalog of blessing and privilege which the Jew possessed and the Gentile did not and which the Jew in particular gloried in and made his boast. The things that the Jew was proud of about himself in distinction from the Gentile. And so he lists six things. Later on, we will consider the list. In the second portion, verses 21 through 23, he brings uh, an indictment against the Jew. A scathing indictment through a series of questions which expose the hypocrisy of the Jew. In essence, he tells the Jew that they were not living up to their privilege. They were, if anything, making a mockery of it. In the same way he said in chapter 2, verse 4, that they were using the goodness of God rather than a means of repentance 
as a means to excuse their sin. So likewise, they were abusing their privileges in order to justify themselves before God. And then thirdly, in verse 24, he speaks of the consequence. Let me read that verse, actually. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And the irony here, the, or, or the consequence of their, um, of their hypocrisy is, as he says, that, uh, that the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of him or because of them, because of their sin, because of their hypocrisy. And the irony here is overwhelming that the Jew who thought to teach others the way of religion He himself not only possessing religion, but being an expert in religion, particularly with reference to the law. This Jew was actually, through his own hypocrisy, the means by which religion was brought into disrepute. So that instead of being a teacher to the nations, what he was actually teaching was another lesson. And it wasn't a good one. And it was the nature of his own hypocrisy. And so there is the basic division. But let me give you a second division, and that is Martin Lloyd-Jones' division, which is more thematic and which I found very helpful. He, uh, he, under two headings and then three subheadings, first he gives what he calls the general characteristics of hypocrisy under three headings. First, that the Jew possessed a merely theoretical knowledge of the truth. To the Jew, the law was something more to be considered and contemplated and argued and debated You think of the scribes and the Pharisees, for instance, then to be put into practice. Second, the hypocrite is someone, he says, who is always pleased with himself. He lacks humility. He exalts himself. He glories in his own position, even as he looks down on others. You think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This was evident in the way he describes them in verse 19 and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. You're confident. Confident in what? Confident in yourself, you yourself. The element of pride. And thirdly, Lloyd-Jones says the hypocrite is someone who never, as a result, examines himself. He's very concerned to teach others. He's very concerned to expose their sins. But it never occurred to him that he had any sins to repent of. Or maybe that the teaching might apply to him. You preach to others, but do you preach to yourself, Paul says. And the answer is, no, they didn't. And so that brings Paul to speak of the specific charges. And in fact, I already gave the first of them. And again, this is just one way to divide the passage. The first is that he preaches to others and not himself. Verse 21. And here there is no question but that he is a hypocrite. The man who does this is obviously uh, obviously, um, is someone who has no interest in keeping the law himself. He's only using the law or his position as a teacher of the law to exalt himself even as he beats down others. Which leads to the second charge that he does the things he tells others not to do. I think I'm going to read this later in the sermon, but Jesus says this about the Pharisees. You lay heavy burdens on the people, but you won't even lift the finger yourself. It's Matthew 23. He does the things he tells others not to do, or we could invert that. He doesn't do the things he tells others to do. And that's evident in the questions that Paul asks, which carry the force of a charge. Uh, You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And so on and so forth. 
these things you tell others not to do, do you do them? With the implied answer, yes, you do and you know it. Well, how then do you think your position is safe, O Jew, when by the standard of your own teaching you are condemned, which is the the earlier statement of verse 3. And finally, the third charge is simply that he dishonors God by breaking the law. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And so there is the basic teaching. Uh, But that that, uh, general summary being said, I want to look at the teaching a little more closely and carefully and then to take that teaching and apply it to those who today call themselves and regard themselves as the people of God. And I would summarize the main point like this. That for all the privileges the Jews possessed, which were many, none of them were saving. None of the Jews uh, or the privileges, rather, which were listed here to the Jews as a nation, were saving. None of them conferred upon the Jew what he imagined, which was a status of favor and safety, by which he imagined he would automatically, by virtue of his position as a Jew, escape God's judgment. Again, the folly of the Jew was to think each of these blessings, which are listed in this passage, automatically conferred salvation, which we will see again in the next passage, about circumcision. I am circumcised. I am a Jew. I am safe. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the hypocrisy that he speaks of in verses 21 through 23 is just a result of this. But it isn't the main thing. The main, the main folly of the Jew was their faulty view of what it means to be in a position of favor and blessing with God. To be certain that I am going to heaven. How does that certainty come? To the individual. Well to the Jew. Here were the things that gave him certainty. That he was in a position of safety and favor. First was simply the fact that he was a Jew. Paul calls him that by name. The name in which the Jew himself boasted. And which summarized his position. Indeed you are called a Jew. To be a Jew was uh, simply to be distinguished from the Gentile. To say I'm a Jew is to say I'm not a Gentile. A Gentile sinner, as it was sometimes said. You think of uh, the occasion at Matthew's table. So it was to belong in a separate class. And then, as a Jew, he was one, Paul says, who rested in the law. And he means by that the law of Moses. The law he was speaking of in the prior passage, verses 11 through 16. This was, in many ways, the cardinal thing, the chief blessing of the Jew. The thing that distinguished him from the Gentile who was without the law was that the Jew possessed the law. And indeed he did. Paul has just said as much. But do you see what he did with it? Did you notice the precise language? He rested in it. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the law was to him like a pillow That he laid his head upon and assured himself that all was well between he and God. Resting in the sense of being at peace. But you notice he didn't rest in his obedience. That would have been bad enough, but at least he wouldn't be a hypocrite. But you see, he rested solely in the law itself. The fact that he possessed it and could lay his head upon it. As though 
To have the law alone could save, even before the first command was obeyed. Next, he made his boast in God. Here again is what made his position differ from the Gentile. The Gentile was one, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, who was without God. He wasn't only without the law, he was without God himself. But the Jew had him. And he was very proud of this fact. He boasted of it. Add to that his knowledge of God's will, which he came to possess through the law of Moses. He wasn't in the dark like these poor Gentiles. He knew what God's will consisted of because God was pleased through Moses to make it known to them. Who could question? Let me just stop here. I'm only four in, four of six. Who could question that these were great blessings? I have no interest in questioning that. Neither did Paul. These were great blessings. Go on to the next. The Jew was also someone who, as a result of his knowledge of God's will, who approved of what is excellent. Again, seen in clear contrast to the Gentile, who approved of sin itself and even encouraged others in their sin. Chapter 1, verse 32. The Jew knew God's will. He approved of it as something good. He loved the law. He was a man, you might say, who was in agreement with God about the vileness of sin on the one hand and of the goodness of uh, the commands on the other. And finally, uh, to to really capture the essence of his position, the Jew, uh, let me speak of him as a corporate man, as a corporate entity, as a nation. He was aware of his relation to the world as one who possessed the law, as one who approved of the law. He was set up as a teacher as a light and a guide to the world. He who possessed the law, he who understood and was an expert in it, he who had been instructed in it from his youth, was to be a teacher of the nations, a bright, shining light by which the darkness of the sin of the Gentile and heathen nations was dispelled. If you read the Old Testament, which we're doing in the evenings, you see quite clearly that was the function of Israel as God gave her the law. Not just that she would be a special People unto the Lord, but also unto the world, a light and a guide to the nations. In other words, what the Jew was meant to do was not just to commend religion to himself. Now, he failed to even do that, but he was meant to commend religion to others. His whole life and existence was meant to be a persuasive argument of the goodness of God and the blessings of obedience. And this is how he viewed himself. He thought he was doing this, but he wasn't. And let me tell you why he was wrong under three further headings. First is what I already indicated. And this seems to be the implied thought here, uh, but it's later spelled out in the next verses. Verses 25 through 29. It's spelled out in chapter 3. It's spelled out in chapter 10. It's spelled out in the Gospels. It's even spelled out in the Old Testament. And that is the fact that none of these blessings, blessings though they were, were saving. And if you just take a moment to consider them, if you were to write it down and look at that list again, you would realize that immediately. These things uh, in which the Jew made his boast and rested in and rejoiced in, blessings though they were, none of them were saving. In which of these six do you find the power of God to save? As Paul declares that he has found in Jesus Christ at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the epistle, the gospel of Jesus Christ that he preached herein is the power of God to save. 
And yet, do you find that in any of these? And did the Jew find it? No, he didn't. He didn't. Here were outward blessings. Blessings which were conferred outwardly upon the visible church of the Old Covenant, which was the nation of Israel. But what Paul says later in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, is something they had failed to see. And that is, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And what makes the difference? You see, you can belong to the outward church. You can participate in the visible outward blessings. And yet you can still come short of salvation. You can fail to experience the power of God unto salvation, even though you're part of the outward visible body. What makes the difference, Paul says, Romans chapter 9. What makes the difference, he says, there is the call of God. It's the decision and the distinguishing will of God. And this is something that the Old Testament itself makes plain. That there were godless sons who sprung from Abraham. Many indeed, in fact the most. So many of these Jews who possessed the law and who could boast in all of these things in the day of Uh, In the day of David, in the day of Jesus, in our own day. Knew nothing and know nothing of the reality of religion as something saving, as something inward. They were in fact, as scripture says, strangers to God and the promise. For the simple reason that they lacked faith from the standpoint of men or from the standpoint of God that they lacked the call. They were not called. But you see, when we talk about these things, calling, election, faith, now we're in the realm of salvation. Now we are considering the categories of saving blessings. These are, uh, let us uh, use the metaphor, these are pillows upon which a man might truly rest his head and assure himself all is well between me and God. Not the outward blessings, but the inward and the spiritual blessings, the categories of salvation. Things which bring us into a consideration of the gospel itself, namely the power of God to say to uh, to save. Later on, Paul says, chapter 10, verse 13. He's speaking to the Jew and the Gentile alike. He says, whoever this is a quotation from from the Old Testament, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation, reconciliation, justification. And by what means? Simply by calling upon his name, which is another way to speak of faith, which he says a few verses earlier. Whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord, that is the man who is saved. That is the man who knows the power of God unto salvation. And so their basic and their most fundamental error was this. They rested and they boasted in blessings which did not save. But the second we find as uh, his explicit charge in the passage, namely verses 21 through 23, that of hypocrisy. My main contention is not that this isn't the explicit charge of the passage against the Jews and all who are like them. It is. It is only that we must see why they were hypocrites. It's well enough to see that they were, but let us see why they were. If we would, as Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the reason they were hypocrites is because of the first point. It is because they rested on things that did not save. They were strangers to the power of God. 
And this is what made them make such a mockery of religion and led especially to their false security resulting in their hypocrisy. The Jew was one who taught others, but who did the things he told them not to do. And why would he need to? Why would he need to be instructed? His whole position was one that that uh, that he was secure. He was in no danger whatsoever. Of course, the Gentile needed the message, but he did not. And so this from this sprung his hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the Jew, which Paul outlines here through this series of questions, is evident enough from the Old Testament as well as from the Gospels. Consider one such charge from our Lord in Matthew 23. I referenced this earlier, but let me read it now. We find him saying the same thing. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3 and verse 13. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You think, again, of them being the instructor of the nations, the teachers of the law. Therefore, whatever they tell you to uh, observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Uh, Then in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's a very fine summary of the passage, in fact, that we are considering. Their hypocrisy was seen uh, in... The way they didn't live up to their own standard. The way they accused others but excused themselves. And as a result of their whole position, they shut up the kingdom of heaven not only to themselves but to others as well. They made such a mockery of religion, they made others conclude, what is the point of it all? Who would want to be religious if that is what it leads to? That's the tragedy of hypocrisy, beloved. Robert Haldane in his... Commentary puts, uh, puts it very powerfully when he summarizes the whole position of the Jew as described in verses 17 through 23. He says, was there ever a more beautiful veil than that under which the Jew presents himself? He's a man of confession, of praise, of thanksgiving, a man whose trust is in the law, whose boast is of God, who knows his will and so forth. But observe what is concealed under this mask. It is a man who is himself untaught. It is a thief, an adulterer, a sacrilegious person. In one word, a wicked man who continually dishonors God by the transgression of his law. And then ask yourself this. What fate do you think awaits such a person? Do you think uh, that the hypocrite's position is secure as he imagines? Obviously not. His position, as Paul says, is one of wrath. It is one of judgment. And just think what will happen to him upon whom Jesus, our Lord, pronounces such awful woes in Matthew 23 and which await him on the last day. But look at the last thing. I said there were three problems with his position. And in many ways, the last problem is the worst by far. Verse 24. Do you do you see what is the result of his hypocrisy for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Do not say, O Jew, that the Old Testament was silent about this. It wasn't. This was always the accusation of the prophets from the earliest days of Israel's life. And do you notice as well, as I said earlier, the terrible irony of this? 
that those set up as a bastion of light do those deeds of wickedness that bring the good name of religion into disrepute. Rather than bringing light, they bring further darkness to a world full of darkness. Look at it like this. Think again of the passages we considered earlier as the scripture reading. Peter, speaking of the position of the church, which was the same position of the Jew prior to the coming of Christ, speaks of the relationship of the believer, and especially the Christian community or the believing community, the relation uh, that he sustains to the world as one of light. Light in the midst of darkness. And what does light do? It dispels the darkness. It spreads. And so Peter says we're meant to shine brightly so that as they, that is the unbelieving onlooking world, observes our behavior, our conduct, though they are inclined to slander us, which Peter says many times, they will not and they cannot. Instead, he says, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Perhaps not now, but at long last, when, the, when Christ returns, they will praise God because of us, even though they are damned. In other words, the power of of religion will be manifest and it will be evident by the lives of those who have experienced it and who are changed as a result. This is the sort of thing that will recommend and commend religion to others as they look on. They will behold with their two eyes the power of God to save, not as a theory, but as a reality. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, which we also considered, Matthew chapter 5. Again, they will not be able to deny the power of religion. They will not be able to suppress in themselves their inclination to praise and to glorify God when they see the power of God with their own two eyes. But it was not so with the Jews, Paul is saying. Rather than recommending religion by their living. They made the worst possible case for God. The Gentiles looking on the Jews felt that there must be no point in religion if this is what it was. And so the Jew filled the mouth of their opponents with arguments against religion. What a terrible indictment. But there it was. There is Paul's case against the Jew. What about us? Do you realize that Paul's whole case against the Jew was their failure to take what they knew and apply it to themselves? That is the essence of hypocrisy. How are we to beware of that leaven of the Pharisees? It is by our own willingness to to come under this teaching, to apply what we know to ourselves. And so let me go through these same three points again and let us examine ourselves in light of the seeing that the position that we hold in relation to the world and to God is the same that the Jews possessed and enjoyed in their own day. And the first, and it is important that we begin here, this brings us to the heart of uh, the argument of the book of Romans. Before we consider the possibility of hypocrisy within the church, let me ask you in terms of what it is that leads to hypocrisy, what is it that you are resting in? What is your boast? What is the thing that you are most proud of? There's no avoiding it. There's something in your heart which wells up with pride and makes you feel totally confident and assured. The thing that you love most. Again, the thing you are most proud of. I wonder what that is. Is it the fact that you attend church? Is it your family? Is it the fact that you are reformed? Or that you take the sacraments and sit under 
preaching, which you tell yourself is faithful? Or what about this? The fact that you were born in a so-called Christian country. And then ask yourself this. I'm just listing the things that a man might boast of today in the way the Jew would have in his own day. Do these things have any ultimate value when contemplated in terms of the righteous judgment of God, which we are considering him uh, considering here? Excuse me. Will any of these things avail on the last day? Will any of them enable you to escape his judgment? I tell you, they will not. None of them will. Any more than these things did for the Jews. All of these are mere outward blessings. None of them are saving. But then let me ask you this. How do you feel about Jesus Christ and him crucified? Does the name itself make you feel proud and assured? As though if he were your advocate and your righteousness, then you could face anything. Even the scrutiny of the righteous judgment of God on the last day. Do you realize why Paul says when he begins to speak of the gospel in chapter 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of it. You see, he's telling you how he felt about it. Once he was a Jew who felt as the Jew did about all these outward blessings, but now he had one and only one boast. There was only one thing in all the world that made him proud and assured and comforted. And that was the fact that Jesus Christ was his advocate and his savior. And that is the Christian position, beloved. That is the only thing that will enable you to face God on the last day. And there's nothing else that is worth boasting uh, in or being proud of than this. Let him who boasts, Paul says, boast in the Lord. Not in the sense that that the Jews were doing, but in the sense that we confess that we are nothing but for Christ, who is our wisdom and our strength and our salvation and even our righteousness before God. But next, let us consider the terrible possibility of hypocrisy. That we would set up ourselves as a bright shining light to the world, as a teacher to the nations, and yet fail utterly to to live up to the standard that we preach. To preach to others and not to ourselves. Uh, You know, it's often said of the preacher that this is the crucial test. Uh, Do you first preach to yourself before you preach to the people? And you realize why that is the crucial test. Because otherwise he might fall into the sin of hypocrisy. He might begin to tell others to live in a way he's not willing to live himself. But do you realize at the same time that Paul is not speaking to preachers here? He's speaking to the corporate body, to the people of God. It applies to all of us who who sit in these pews. Are we free of the charge of hypocrisy? But lastly, and in many ways, this is the most awful and searching test of all. And so you see, these things are not so easy to face. I've had difficulty facing them all week. As I've tried to preach this to myself before I preach it to you. And that is what of the last charge. Verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What of your witness? Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this verse, you cannot blame people today for judging Christ and Christianity by what they see in church members. I know that's something that seems unfair. It's a scrutiny we don't wish to have upon ourselves. We feel that the world is holding us to an impossible standard. We would offer and commend Christ and not ourselves. Don't look at me, look at Christ, we say. But what the world says, and quite frankly what God says, is that they're meant to see Christ in us. And if they do not, then they never will. As they look upon the churches, they look upon the followers of Christ, 
Again, if they do not see Christ, they never will. They'll never have any interest in him. They will always judge what we preach by what we do. And if we do not do what we preach, we ought not to be surprised if they have no interest in Christianity or the church. And so it was in this sense that Jesus and Peter said what they did. God would be glorified not only in the praises of his people, but in the praises they occasion in others by their good and holy living. Again, if you just look at what Paul is contending for concerning the gospel that he was preaching, that it is the power of God to save. And is there anything more wonderful than that? The saving power of God brought to bear upon a sinner's existence. Freeing him not only from uh, the terrors of the law, but also from the terror and the power of sin. But the question which the world wants to know is this. Is it actually true? Is the power real? Does God really free sinners from the terrors of the law and the power of sin? And how can you know? Where is this power to be seen? Well, it is seen only in a transformed life, in the lives of those who profess it, the disciples of Jesus. A man set at liberty by the gospel, who is so full of the Holy Spirit that he's not only assured of God's love and favor, rightly, unlike the Jew, but who is also, as a result, living a life that glorifies God. In other words, unlike the Jew, on the other hand, he actually keeps the law. I'm only anticipating the later arguments of chapter 6 and chapter, uh, chapter 6 and 8. But again, here is the real Christian. Someone about whom even the world cannot deny something has got a hold of him. Some power has come into his life. Something has changed him and made him a new creation. Of course, that won't stop them from trying to trap us and slander us. But as Peter says, their case will simply fail. It will fall apart. They will be silenced by the goodness of our living. Beloved, I just ask you as I, uh, well, I nearly close. Is that your view of the gospel? And is that your view of the church? Our task and our, mit- our witness to commend the power of religion to others. A city set on a hill whose light is meant to shine. And if it is not shining, what a terrible indictment against the church. But let me just lastly here answer the question that I asked earlier, very briefly, which was, why does Paul wound so deeply? Why does he pursue the hypocrite so relentlessly? Why does he destroy the position of the Jew so utterly and completely? And I would offer briefly two answers. The first is because he loved them so and and greatly desired their salvation. Romans chapter nine. But then secondly, it was because he knew as one who knew the power of God to save. That there is nothing so dangerous as resting upon a false and a vain confidence. To boast upon that which does not save. You see, the man who is not sure, who lacks confidence, you can deal gently with him. But the man who is sure, yet who is sure of the wrong thing, you almost have to take him and shake him out of his false confidence. And that's what Paul was doing here. It is a difficult But often a necessary work, especially from the standpoint of preaching to those who are accustomed to going to church. Yes, and sometimes even he, which means even you, needs your idols to be smashed and seen for what they are, namely false saviors that do not save. So that you might begin again to place your confidence in that alone which saves, namely 
to anticipate the words of the hymn we're about to sing, Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness. And that alone. Beloved, do you see that this is the only possible loving thing to do to the man who is assured but assured of the wrong thing, the hypocrite? Not to cater to him in his delusions, but to lead him to the place of safety, even into the arms of a faithful Savior. And oh, oh, that we might as a church possess such boldness and courage and zeal ourselves for the one and only gospel in the world today, which is full of such delusions. Amen. And let us come together to the table.